0: Okay, everybody, today I'm going to break down Coinbase's Q3 earnings. They had a huge drop-off quarter over quarter, but a huge performance year over year. So we're going to get into all those details. What a great company. Then I'm going to go into the Startup Checklist, Episode 6, where we cover markets and branding. A great episode. Stick with us.
1: This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, Go to LinkedIn.com slash checklist. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at Odoo.com slash twist. That's O D O O.com slash twist. And Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist.
0: All right, first up, Coinbase has their earnings out. Their share price has dropped over 10% in after-hours trading on Tuesday after they reported a 40% decrease in revenue from Q2 to Q3. So, on Wednesday, Coinbase's share price recovered from 322 to 341, is now only down 5% off of Tuesday's peak drop. It represents a $72 billion market cap for the company, which is extraordinary. In Q3, Coinbase saw large quarter over quarter drops in major categories like revenue users and profits, not dissimilar to Robinhood's story, but in their year over year numbers, they were still up huge. So, uh, if you remember Robinhood's earnings on episode 1313 two weeks ago, revenue is down 35% quarter over quarter, but up 35% year over year. What that means what that says to me is there was just a you know, we, we had a big quarter people with stimmy checks, you know, crypto booms, everybody in a mania to buy tulips or the next, <laughs> you know, giant wave of consumer and technology innovation. Time will tell uh, transaction based revenues will swing wildly depending on market conditions. That, that's the truth about these things. If things get really popular and there is a mania, whether it is, you know, AMC stock and stonks, or Dogecoin or Bitcoin or NFTs, you know, things can go crazy. Although I don't know if Coinbase is actually trading in NFTs yet. So let's just get into the earnings real quick. Total revenue 1.3 billion. That's up four times year over year, 4x year over year. That is extraordinary. We've been talking about high growth companies being 20, 30, 40, 50% growth. 4x 400% growth, it's down 40% quarter over quarter, there's going to be bumps in the road in these high growth companies. So I think that's to be expected. transaction revenue, a billion uh, that's 83% of the total revenue. Again, that's up 40, 4x year over year down 45% quarter over quarter. subscription revenue and services uh, revenue 145 million, that's about 11%. This is mostly made up of blockchain rewards from people staking Ethereum. And custodial fees of 31.5 million. That's where you get they get paid to hold on to your crypto and make sure it doesn't get stolen. Subscription revenue grew from 600k in 2020 to 8.6 million in 2021. Those are small numbers compared to the transaction fees, the custodial fees, etc. However, it's 12x right 13x like that's a big multiple. And so I do think that Robinhood and Coinbase and all these financial services companies are going to have great subscription revenue. If people will pay for calm and Netflix and Spotify and Steezy, to learn how to dance to learn how to, you know, uh, get to bed easier, they're going to pay for financial subscriptions, it's still worth it, right. And so I'm paying for Twitter. Now I I did Twitter blue for $2.99 a month. Other revenue 77 million. uh, They don't specify what this is. Um, I'm thinking those are services revenues when they do big block transactions, i.e you know if somebody wants to buy a billion dollars in bitcoin maybe that's what it is last week crypto news outlet the block reported coinbase was testing a new subscription service called coinbase one benefits would reportedly include no fee trading uh, which would put them head to head with robinhood which is going head to head with them in crypto now and prioritize phone support on holidays and weekends no word on the cost of the subscription yet i think 5 10 bucks a month is a no brainer i would like to see these companies even go 15 20 dollars per month uh, and have something really great for people Coinbase is trying to diversify away from transaction based revenue, uh, according to sources, Robinhood offers something similar with Robinhood gold, that's five bucks a month. And that lets you have bigger instant deposits, professional research from Morningstar level two market data from NASDAQ, uh, access to margin investing, all kinds of like premium stuff. And uh, when you have those kind of programs, it basically lets you segment who are your best customers. It's kind of the Amazon Prime of uh, this service. You also see that with iCloud, I now pay for some iCloud, I pay like 30 or 40 bucks a month for an iCloud bundled subscription, which gives me arcade news, two or four terabytes for my family. So now all three of my daughters, when they come to me for a game, I say go to the arcade tab, you can have any game in arcade, you cannot have the other games, uh, because they have all kinds of upselling and garbage in them that I hate. Thank you, shout out Tim Cook for making a nice clean uh, arcade where I can have my kids and trust that the games are not uh, trying to manipulate them so much. And then the news product is pretty good too on Apple News, uh, shout out to Apple News, because now I don't have to have a Wall Street Journal subscription, I can just see some stuff there. Okay, back to Coinbase monthly transacting users 7.4 million, again, up massively 3.5x year over year, but down quarter over quarter. That's a good number to uh, look at, like, because you do have a lot of holders, people who created accounts, maybe bought one Bitcoin or a 10th of a Bitcoin. Robinhood has 17 million monthly users. So you're seeing the difference between the crypto And the trading of stocks. I think the crypto people, they they may buy every couple of months, but they're holding it, they're not selling their Bitcoin. That's the whole point is to hold it forever. And so I think that's a great opportunity for Robinhood to add users. And then adding stocks is something that Coinbase could do. If you know people are trading stocks, they could get more trading going on net income, 406 million up 5x year over year, pretty efficient company, Uh, down 75 percent quarter over quarter. For these companies, I really don't care about their profits. I care about their growth and the number of customers they have, I would rather see them uh, not have profits at this point and see growth. Public markets might feel differently. In related news, Bitcoin and Ethereum are now at all time highs Bitcoin $68,000. Ethereum Almost five. Uh, Coinbase went public via direct listing in April at $381 a share popped up to 421 they had 100 billion. In July, the stock bottomed out at almost half two twenty-one. So this has been a lot of swings. We saw that also with Uber, which I think during the pandemic went down to 15 $16 a share, up to 60 now at 45 with price targets of 70. Like these stocks when they first come out, I think Wall Street has to understand the business and look for consistency look for profits. And so uh, that represents an opportunity. It also represents the danger of some of these companies because, you know, Some retail investors might not know the difference between Nikola and Tesla, even though they are the first and last names of a famous uh, scientist, they're two radically different companies. And so people have to, you know, the markets, I think retail investors have to learn the difference between them. They're getting pretty savvy, I think, and they have to understand what exactly they're buying and what the risks are, you're going to see a lot of speculative stuff come out, VTOLs, electric trucks, anything that's a theme, quantum computing, uh, space travel all of these things are highly speculative, uh, synthetic biology, when these things spack and, and go out early pre revenue or modest revenue, customer traction, be careful, you're making a venture style investing. And if the stock goes parabolic and goes nuts, and the company doesn't have customers yet, man, just pump the brakes. And you know, you can wait to buy it is my best advice. I don't want to give stock buying advice. But if my mom or my brother are asking me, and they said, "Hey, you know," do I need to buy the stock? I was like, mm, you know, it's got the same price as another company with real revenue like Coinbase and Robinhood have real customers and revenue and Nicola and maybe this VTOL company, maybe they don't have customers and revenue yet, maybe put 80% into the company with the customers and 20% into the speculative one, there's some reasonable betting strategy here. And it is gambling. When you are investing in pre product market fit companies, you are gambling. Uh, Coinbase and Robinhood are not that. These are millions of customers loving and using these. So, what I'll say about this pair of companies, I obviously have an interest in one and not the other, but I have accounts on both, is they're incredibly well run companies. They have an incredibly large user base already and passionate users who are not going anywhere, in my estimation. So, I am a huge fan of both Coinbase and Robinhood. Also, if you look at Coinbase and Robinhood, uh, the founders are still running the companies, and that's always a great sign. And they're constantly, if you look at the product velocity, releasing. New products. So Robin Hood with their crypto wallet and NFTs are coming to Coinbase, according to some announcements. So product velocity is really, really powerful in a company led by a founder. You see that with Elon. You saw it with Travis. Just constantly releasing new products. Uh you saw it with Steve Jobs. There's this obsession with new groundbreaking um investments in New products. And so, congratulations to the Coinbase team. Okay, next up is our 10 items for our startup checklist. We're going to go over markets and branding. Stick with us. Listen, right now, LinkedIn is going to give you a hundred dollars towards your first ad campaign on LinkedIn by just going to LinkedIn.com slash checklist. And then you're going to get the hundred dollars right in your account. Now, You know you need high-quality leads. Every startup founder and marketer has been there. You're not alone. You're planning a launch. You got a great campaign coming. You know your audience, your team's happy. Everything is going according to plan, except that one thought in the back of your head. How can I be sure that my acquisition campaign is gonna drive high-impact leads for my sales team? And they want, they covet, they need those high-impact leads. Well, with LinkedIn ads, you don't need to guess, because when you advertise on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to engage. Over 30 million companies are active on LinkedIn, and over 71% of professionals use LinkedIn to make business decisions. LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn. It's that simple. So here is your call to action. Do business where business is done. Startup marketers. Don't wait to start achieving your brand and lead gen goals. Start today. LinkedIn is offering our listeners a $100 advertising credit. So just take that $100, get that credit and start your first LinkedIn campaign at linkedin.com slash checklist. Terms and conditions, of course, apply. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode six of our startup checklist. Why are we doing this? Because we get asked the same questions all the time by founders. And we have invested in over 300 companies. We invest in about 10 a month here at launch and my uh, syndicate called The com. Part of our jobs as investors is to let founders know, hey, you know, here's what's around that corner or here's a pothole. When you come around that corner, there's a pothole there. You know, sometimes founders hit it, they blow out a tire. Hey, by the way, that turn is really fast. That exit ramp, it says you can go 35 miles an hour on that exit ramp. I might suggest doing 30 uh, because it can get a little slick in the rain. Basically, we're not trying to tell founders how to run their companies as investors, but we do want to let them know of things to think about. Increasingly, I find myself wanting to invest in startups earlier. And so we have something called Founder University. And we started this program to maybe uh, help people who are considering starting companies. Now, if you've already started your company, this checklist is still a great thing because you'll go through it and out of every section of 10 or so, every episode, we do 10, you, you're going to probably go six, like, of course, I know that JCal seven, of course, I know that there might be two or three that become conversation starters, because nobody can keep all of these items in their head at one time. I was inspired to do this by a book called the checklist manifesto, which I found out about from uh, Jack Dorsey at Square and Twitter. And I make everybody who comes to work for me read this startup checklist. Because it turns out when you make a checklist, you know, less planes fall out of the sky and less people die in surgery. Those are like two examples in the book. And so checklists are important because they enforce uh, discipline and increase performance and you have less cars flipping uh, and spinning out of control and pilots losing control of planes. I know it's kind of dark, but it's the truth. Checklists did start with pilots and with surgeons and the book is a really great read. Highly recommend it. So, you can view this checklist at thisweekinstartups.com/you guessed it checklist. Thisweekinstartups.com/checklist. You'll see the whole checklist. I'm hoping that some of you write blog posts about this or maybe talk about doing it at your company, you can remix this use it however you want uh, non commercially, and then just link back to the original. This week in startups.com slash checklist. Of course, if we miss something, tell us what we missed. And today we're going to do two topics uh, that are somewhat related. One is market and one is branding. So let's get started. First is item number 51 on the checklist. Are you creating a new market or servicing an existing one? and how to tell the difference. So I believe that some of the great brands induce a market to exist. They create a new behavior in the world. So if we look at something like uh, Spotify and Calm, just, you know, I'm an investor in Calm, obviously, but uh, not an investor, but do love Spotify. You know, people were listening to music before spotify came along in fact you know people had real networks or they had cd collections amazon music there were a lot of different music providers out there uh, and people were using itunes to buy by the track consumers love music we know that so was spotify creating a new behavior listening to music no maybe you could argue creating playlists was a new behavior but spotify figured out the rights issues they removed a lot of friction from an existing market music listening was an existing market. So they were going to compete with that existing market. That means they were going to go head to head with people buying individual tracks on iTunes, which, of course, was competing against CDs before it. So that was the uh, way the market sort of played out in music, you had CDs, which were printing money for the industry, then you had single tracks buying, you know, particular songs on iTunes for 99 cents. That was a bit of a disaster for the music industry. Because you know, people went from spending 12 to 15 bucks on a CD to just, you know, sniping the top two tracks that they wanted to listen to over and over again. And artists hated it. Now you go back to Spotify, massive consumption, you know, and and arguably people are listening to more music than they ever had. Uh, Now for calm, what was the market for a meditation app before calm existed? Uh, And Headspace, their competitor, there really was no market for it. Meditation was this weird thing you did if you lived in Santa Monica and like some churches and basements or rec centers or a yoga studio on the weekends might have one or two meditation classes or there were you know 5000 dollar you know courses you could take. it wasn't something that was in the general perception of the public and sure, you could find on YouTube or you know iTunes Education had some select MP3s here or there you could go find. But there wasn't a Netflix, a subscription, Spotify of meditation. So they basically created the category. People didn't know they needed it. They got it. They had more equanimity, reduced anxiety, reduced depression, more focus, more joy in their life. And then they added sleep and people got to sleep better. You know, all the great things that calm and uh, their contemporaries did. So they induced a new market. I would argue that uh, if you look at Uber, Airbnb, they also induced markets. Airbnb. Uh, I remember in the early days, I've told a story before, I had one of the producers on the show say they were going to Japan. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I I know what the producer was getting paid back then. It wasn't a lot of money. I was like, wow, Japan's super expensive. Like, I have to plan my trip there (laughs) and think about what I'm going to spend. And she's like, yeah, I got a, you know, uh, a room in Kyoto for 40 bucks a night. And I'm going to go there for the first six nights. And then I was like, sorry, $40? Like, that's what you spend on lunch. And she's like, oh, no, it includes breakfast. And I was like, okay, wow. Airbnb, I believe, Yes, it competed with hotels, but hotels continue to do well. So I think what they did is induced people to take longer trips, more trips, and maybe uh, trips they wouldn't otherwise have taken. So I think it did both. And clearly, the numbers show that the only people who really I think lost out with Airbnb were the two star three star hotels. In other words, the really cheap hotels that weren't a great experience and you're like, I don't really want to stay at this hotel. It's like $89 or $125. I remember staying at those with Brian Alvey back when I was broke, and we we're trying to get things going. And it was 20k debt with weblog Zing. And we would literally get whatever the cheapest place was, you know, 99 bucks in a city, and we get a double room. And the two of us would stay in the room uh, together because we, we couldn't afford two rooms. You know, it's 99 bucks. It's big money. So Airbnb then became an option shortly after that. And uh, obviously, Uber people started taking more rides, they would go out more often. So in LA, we saw this people wouldn't go out to dinner or drinking because they didn't want to drive drunk. So there was a lot of, you know, stay at home culture, I think it it did induce more people to go out uh, during that time pre pandemic. Okay, item number 52 on the checklist. Let's see if you can check this one off. Do you understand the difference between what I call a lazy TAM and a bottom up TAM? So TAM stands for total addressable market. And early stage investors, are not generally making a decision on Tam, they're usually making a decision, you know, I'm talking about angel investors, based upon the product, the team, and maybe some early customer traction. However, uh, when you get to later rounds of funding, yeah, Tam does come into play because people want to know how big can this be, because you're charging, you know, 10, 20, 30, $40 million uh, for the valuation of a company, which means people are spending three to $10 million to own 20% of it these VCs are going to want to understand the total addressable market. Well, there's a lazy way to do this, which is you type in like, what is the market for it? And you know, you find some number from Gartner, it's 4.4 trillion in 2022. Well, what does that include? Well, that number is going to include everything like buying computers, software, monitors, you know, consultants, it's a giant number, you didn't create that number. Now, what would be better is if you were going to make something very specific you were making a new uh, webcam is it and the total addressable market for it comparable to the market for webcams? No. And then if you include in webcams, like everybody who has a webcam, which is every phone, and you're like, there's 5 billion webcams out there. That's not your market either. You're not, if you're making a fancy, you know, state of the art, uh, webcam that people would use as a replacement for the one built into their laptop, that's a different market, you, you have a very specific group of people like creators. Uh, so then you might work on a bottom up TAM. You might say, hey, who are people who are professionally creating video? How many creators are there on YouTube with over 10,000 followers? How many uh, creators on TikTok have over 25,000 followers? Those might be the people who will be inclined to be in your bottom up market. And so you really want to understand the TAM let's take another look at a lazy tam example, you know, you have Acme Corporation, they're selling SaaS software to dentist's office, they charge $1,000 per month per office. Okay, great. Here's a lazy tam. According to the American Dental Association from June 2020, the total projected dental spending for 2021 was between 123 billion and 154 billion. Lazy tam, would you be just take that number and put it in there? Like, oh, you know, this is what dentists spend on equipment. That's not your tam. If you're making SaaS software for them to manage their office, you're not going to get 10% of that market of and have a 15 billion revenue company in dentist office, you would want to know, well, who are you selling to what type of dentist office so well, it turns out in 2020, there were 201,000 working dentists in the US, uh, according to the ADA. Okay, so now you got a more interesting number. Okay, if they each had their own office, your potential market would be 200,000 or if they each had paid for their own seat in the software, there'd be 200,000 seats if you did sell by dentist. So you can start to make some approximation here about those dentists. Well, there are only 187,000 dental offices in the US, according to, you know, some market research we saw online. So some office might have multiple dentists in them. So you're seeing how I'm making a much more interesting approximation of what my total addressable market is by working from the bottom up. And that is so much more credible when you go into a VC, it means you understand your customers and market in a deep way, not a superficial way instead of being lazy, you're being thoughtful. With investors, thoughtful people who are of action are so much more attractive, oh, you get stuff done, you take action. And in fact, doing a bottom up TAM puts you in the bucket of taking action, you didn't just take the easy way out and grab a number. When I see that I just think hmm, this person's lazy, they they, they just spent the least amount of time on the slide or thinking about their market. Now, let's say you capture 10% of the market of the number of dentists, uh, dental offices out there, well, $1,000 a month times 18,000 or so dental offices, you know, $224 million a year in revenue, right? It's pretty great. You're making a a real business. That's a great business that I mean, just thinking about it right now, somebody build, you know, SaaS software for dental offices or tell me, you know, what's the state of the art there seems like a pretty viable market getting 10% of it equals 200 million a year, pretty great market. So doing a Bottom up, Tam, is just going to make you so much more credible. I think I've beaten that horse to death there. Let's go to checklist item number 53. If you listen to Twist often, you've heard me talk about Odoo's suite of business apps a lot. Well, they are going to give you your first app free forever and $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com twist. That's odo slash twist. And here is why Odoo is great for startups. Well, their suite of business apps helps you run your entire company on but one platform. They're going to streamline your workflows by bringing all of your information together, which eliminates repetitive tasks like data entry across multiple platforms. Plus, if you only need two or three apps to optimize your workflow, that's all you pay for. Odoo won't charge you for apps you don't use. And they offer 30 main apps with over 16,000 apps from their open source community. Their apps include bookkeeping sales CRM website builders and more. Again, your first app is free forever and Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. Just go to odoo.com slash twist for that $1,000 off again, odoo.com slash twist. Have investors had success or failure in your market before this is the scar tissue issue. And so if you were in the grocery business and you lost your shirt and pants and car and everything, <laughs> you know, backing webvan or cosmo in the 90s. These were two services that were very analogous to Instacart, Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash. If you lost you all of your money on those, one of two things can happen. One, you could say never again. The market is too low margin, it's too operationally intensive, or you might say I wonder what's happened since that time when Webvan collapsed and maybe I should make a bet here and what have we learned what new technologies are out there if it turns out the reason Webvan did so poorly was because I don't know the trucks were always missing uh and you could never track things in real time well GPS would have changed that right that for 20 years later everybody's got GPS on their phone and their cars okay that could be a big change oh we have real time inventory systems and robotic factories that keep everything Oh, okay, the inventory was a big problem, that's going to be 20% more efficient. And if you have that scar tissue, it could go one of two ways, either it could attract you to the investment, or it could make you absolutely have a bias against it. So you want to know, have your investors ever invested in that space. In the previous example, we talked about dental offices, if somebody had made client server architecture, for dental offices and it was just too expensive because you had to send somebody in and put a server for $100,000 and network cards into the dental office and there was a $100,000 onboarding fee and dentists wouldn't do it because they would rather put that into an x-ray machine. Okay, now you say, hey, we have a SaaS solution. All it requires is a web browser. and You're like, well, they've got $500 computers now $1,000 computers and they have a web browser. So we've just eliminated that $100,000 onboarding cost. Maybe we should go after this again. And this is a way to find investors and target investors. Sometimes people come to me and say, Hey, we're blockable. As one example, a company we invested in, we are in housing. And it's like, okay, who, who might also be involved in an adjacency? Well, if somebody had done mods or homes or ADUs, they might be interested. Or if somebody had done a construction company, and they just made foundations or windows, or smart home technology, or maybe they worked on a company that had factories like Tesla, Oh, and blockables like the Tesla of building homes. Okay, that seems like an interesting analogy. Let's go to the Tesla investors. So you can find investors by doing this technique. And then you have to understand by asking them a probing question, how do you look at the space? Because here's what we've learned. I wonder based on your learnings, what you think of our assumptions. Now, this is like, just absolutely going to light up all the neurons in an investors brain, they're going to when you say, What did you learn from Webvan, Bill Gurley? And how does that relate to Postmates? Man, Bill Gurley is going to talk for four hours. He's going to pull out some notes he has in some binder from back then. It is absolutely a way to engage investors deeply in your company. So just think that through. Item number 54 on the checklist Do you know who your competitors are? One of the most frustrating things is uh, founders who say, We don't have any competitors. And then you type in the name of their company, competitors, and you find a landing page on one of those you know, websites that puts all the competitors for SaaS software, and you see 17 competitors. And then you ask them, hey, what about these competitors? And you're like, Oh, those aren't our competitors? So why not? Well, oh, they don't accept uh, PayPal. And You're like, what? <laughs> or they come up with some reason of why oh, they don't have AI. And it might be a valid reason in their mind. But you really have to have empathy and think about the customers. Do the customers actually see a difference between taking a Lyft and taking an Uber? Uh, do they see a difference between using DoorDash and Uber Eats? Maybe not, you know, <laughs> they may see some friction in putting their credit card in. Now the restaurants might see a difference. Maybe there's a different pricing or, you know, different number of customers. So you can drill down on that and double click on it. But you got to be honest about your competitors. And almost everybody creates like this x y four quadrant, better, cheaper, and we're the better version, we're cheaper, or we're faster and cheaper. And, and everybody else is slow and expensive. Yeah, I think those are good intellectual exercise if you do them with intellectual honesty. So don't be ridiculous is what I would say. And I find people are often ridiculous in what they consider competitors and what they don't. Often, uh, people will say our competitors are using Excel, right? So we're creating some SaaS software, but most people use Excel, that's valid. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why would people pay for it? If it's working in Excel? Are they really going to pay for it? A lot of people have pitched me on a CRM system for, you know, tracking our startups. And I'm like, yeah, I don't feel the need to pay for that right now. I might at some point. But you know, in the early days, I was like, I, I think I meet with 20 companies a month, so I can keep it in a Google sheet, or I can manage it in my email box. <laughs> Thanks, but not necessary. At a certain scale, you might. And so those are the things that you have to really take into account is the consumer. And how do they look at it? And it, it really is a super tell when people leave out their competitors, and then you find out about it as an investor, it just intellectually dishonest, or shows a lack of rigor and your credibility goes down. When you're a founder, especially in a funding environment, you are trying to be more credible than their other options to invest in. And you're in that credibility race, and understanding your competitive landscape and being able to talk about it in an intellectually honest way, is the sign of a mature founder and a backable founder. So keep that in mind item 55 on our checklist, what are the barriers to entry in your market? It's critically important if you think about a market like Uber again, what is the blocker? Well, you need drivers. And we've all seen how hard it is to get drivers and the competition for drivers. If you said I want to compete with DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates today. Well, they've got all the restaurants online. Does a restaurant want the seventh iPad, the eighth iPad that doesn't have a lot of customers very hard to break in. So there is a network effect you know, in some businesses, other businesses, it's hard to rip out the technology. So you have to understand, are you the last people to come in? Or are you the first people to come in? What are the barriers to entry in this market? Tether has been operating a stable coin, we've been talking about that here hashtag tether investigation, what a disaster that company is the fines, the malfeasance, (laughs) you know, the rumors, everything is just crazy about that company. Uh, Who knows if they pull a, a rabbit out of the hat, but they are faced with a lot, a lot of competition. And a lot of headwinds, regulations, circle doing things you know in a much more uh, transparent way with a lot more regulation. So what is the barrier to entry? It's high to make a stable going, I would say it's, it's not an easy thing to do. However, with enough money at stake, people will take that on. and so that is something to think about. I just saw yesterday somebody is starting I've seen two of these now, two people taking on Google search. one is called you.com. and then there's another one. And I was like, wow, you know, I thought I was crazy doing it in year 10 of Google. These people are doing it year 20 something of Google. Pretty crazy. Okay, so putting uh, the barriers to entry to mind, you do need to understand how defensible and what defense is. Branding is part of being defensible. So having a great brand is defensible. If you look at Airbnb, they have so much trust. Forget about the network effects, just the fact that people trust Airbnb, and they've used it before. And the people who are hosts, we had an Airbnb, we were running, uh, we had a a house we had moved out of unexpectedly and we were renting it. We had a party there. There was six or seven thousand dollars in damage. The person broke the agreement to not have more than eight people in the space. They had, you know, many more people. Yeah, they had a rager. And when I confronted the guy, he's like, I'm not gonna lie, it was a great party. I was like, Great, you did six thousand dollars in damage. But lo and behold, Airbnb was able to settle that. This is through some combination of insurance and charging the people for the damage. I don't know exactly how it got worked out, but it got worked out, and that made me say, you know what. I'll use Airbnb. Again, you might have that on the consumer experience, you might have it in the host experience. Branding is part of defensibility. And so let's talk about branding a little bit. Okay, SOC 2 compliance is critically important. Why? If you don't have SOC 2 tight, you're going to lose major customers, you just can't close them. It's that simple. And guess what? Vanta V-A-N-T-A, is going to give you 1000 off your SOC 2 compliance. Vanta's compliance software makes it easy to get and to renew your SOC 2. They continually test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements. They partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. And on average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks, compared to three to five months without Vanta. Take it from Kitty Hawk CEO John Hegrains. He heard me read Vanta's ad, and emailed me about how much he loves Vanta. I'm kidding you not. John told me that Vanta was essential in helping Kitty Hawk get SOC 2 compliant so they could target larger customers. If you haven't heard of SOC 2, you will when you get to those big customers. So unlock the big sales and give your employees time to work on more business-critical assignments, like your product, like sales. Vanta's giving Twist listeners a $1,000 discount on their subscription at vanta.com slash twist. Once again, vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off dot a.com slash twist item 56 on our checklist. Does your company name pass the bad telephone test? In other words, is it easy to spell over the telephone? And I think it's critically important to make sure that happens. Uh, in Brad Stone's book, The Everything Story, Jeff Bezos originally wanted to call his name Kadabra as in abracadabra, you know, just how magical shopping was one click, boom, you get something. <laughs> bezos's lawyer convinced him the name sounded too similar to cadaver as in a dead body <laughs> and when he couldn't understand over the phone what bezos had said bezos said yeah can you trademark cadaver the lawyer said cadaver that's a terrible name obviously bezos took to his advice went with amazon great moment in history you have to ask yourself when you leave vowels out or you misspell stuff how much of a blocker is that going to be i like really simple names like uber and calm but remember uber didn't have the uber.com domain that was owned by a music record label Uh, eventually they were able to buy it and they were uber taxi and i remember saying to travis like we got to drop the taxi like and can i get credit for that in the movie and he laughed He's like, what do you mean i was like you know like sean parker's getting credit for taking the the out of the facebook he's like well we're obviously going to take it out i was like i know you're obviously going to take it out all i'm asking for is credit so when they make the movie and they do the HBO show. Can I shout out Brian Koppelman? Can I get credit for that? <laughs> they eventually dropped it. Airbnb, you know, a uh, really great brand. And if you can't get the domain name, it's okay to fake it till you make it. But you really want to have, you really want to pass the test. Uh, it's very important. Robinhood, Spotify, Yelp. You can go down enterprise names, Shopify, Slack, Salesforce. They're really easy to spell, right? Nobody's going to misspell Salesforce, Slack, Zoom. I mean, maybe you put an X in there. But generally speaking, people are going to get that right. Now, item 57 branding. Uh, do you own a great domain name? Now it's hard to get a great domain name. Zoom was not zoom.com. It was zoom.something. I can't remember what the name of it was originally. Uh, and I think it's still zoom.us. So it's still zoom us. <laughs> which is ridiculous. They they did get zoom.com. But I guess they never changed it. I don't know if that was a technical thing or just them uh, shouting out to their uh, existing, but you can get Something like zoom.us uh, or zoom.is or zoom.co for now. And if you ever get the domain name, great. If you don't, it's not going to be a disaster. When I saw com.com on this very podcast, I immediately was attracted to the founder because he could get the domain name. So getting the domain name is great. You're going to have more credibility. But if you couldn't get com.com, get com, tricom, becom, go com, com app, the com app, you can grab something like that. And what I suggest you do is that you flood the zone. So you get 30 different versions of it. Why is that important? Well, let's say the person who owns com decides like they just have a blog and they've been doing it for 20 years. They don't want to sell you com.com. You say, Hey, we have com blog, the com blog, com calm blogging, com dot blog, get com, try com, Would any of these appeal to you in our collection to move your site to in exchange for a million dollars for the domain name? Now you've basically given them an exit ramp. So this is one of my secret techniques, but the exit ramp technique is a great one. And then go get all the social media handles, the Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, so you can offer them the bundle of handles. Great way for you to get it. Social media handles are important as well. You don't need to have the .com, but it does impress people when you do. Italic was recent on the program, and I was just like, that's cool they got italic.com. Is it necessary they could have shop Italic? They probably do own shop Italic. I own a day.com, which was going to be like, uh, we're still planning on doing this at some point, like an email a day about a specific topic or an SMS every day about a specific topic. And uh, never got around to building it. But somebody made a clothing line a day, like, I don't know, underwear, a day, t shirt a day, I'm not sure exactly what they, why they picked the branding. And they're using some other domain for it. And that's fine, right? Like, they don't need my domain name. They didn't want to pay me the price I paid for it. So I was like, okay, some point, maybe they go public. And they're like, hey, JCal, we'll give you a million dollars for it. And I'd be like, okay, great. Here, here you go. Okay, let's talk about logos because that comes up often. Uh, Most logos are so ugly. Um, Classic example, look at the Uber cab logo. I mean, it is terrible. I I I called it Uber taxi before it was Uber cab, right? So uh, if you check out the early designs of Uber cab, the logo was like really bad. It looked like it was designed for 50 bucks and probably was. It looked like it was designed in Microsoft Paint. I, when I did Mahalo, had a little bit of money and I, Convinced John Hicks, who did the Mozilla and Thunderbird logos, to do the Mahalo logo, came out beautiful, cost me a couple of thousand dollars. He wasn't available for like six months. I basically said, What do you charge for a logo? You know, like in the waiting list, it was like two grand. I said, Hey, if you happen to have an opening, I'll pay you 4000 uh, and I'm willing to put the $2,000 deposit right now. And if somebody cancels or they're behind, and you know what, money talks. And there was some weekend, I guess somebody was behind in getting him collateral and he just told them, like, Hey, listen, didn't get me the deliverables, if I remember the story correctly, and um, he just did it for me in a, in a week, and it was just absolutely fantastic. So, thank you, John Hicks. I never forget you did that for me. If your product is absolutely fantastic, the logo doesn't matter. You know, Craigslist, Uber Cab, you know the the product. If it's transcendent and awesome, people won't care about the logo, and you can iterate. And your design team will want to iterate as time goes on. You'll want to do a logo design. I remember Uber did a gorgeous one at some point. That was animated uh, when Travis was running the company. They spent a lot of money on it. They did a really thoughtful design. And it it was basically news when they did a new logo. Famously, Steve Jobs with the next logo spent a bunch of money on it. These branding exercises, I think, can be worth it later on in the early days. You know, spending 50 bucks on a logo and then spending 500, then spending 5,000, then someday spending 50. That's a fine way to do it. Uh, I think it's wise to not burn all your money early for a logo. I happen to have raised millions of dollars. And I was able to spend $4,000 on the logo early, probably not the best use of capital, you know, early on, but I thought it was important. And, you know, I had raised a ton of money. So okay, branding, item number 59. Is your website beautiful? Is it designed cleanly? Well, terrible websites really destroy your credibility with investors, it can be simple. It doesn't need to be a 10 out of 10. But it can't be a four five or six out of 10. If you use Squarespace, the site's going to be beautiful. Just use Squarespace when you start out use one of their templates. Boom, I'm not gonna make this into an ad for Squarespace. They've been a supporter of the program. But when I think beautiful website, I just immediately think Squarespace, you can't have an ugly website has to be gorgeous. But does it have to be a 10 out of 10? No, it just can't be a five or six to get to seven and a half to eight and a half is good enough. That's probably where you want to stop and get back to work on your company. You don't have to obsess. But you do need to trend towards having Something that is high functioning and clean and understandable, so you don't want to have a bad impression. We did remote demo day uh, you can go to remote and um you know we, we were immediately had a gorgeous website, but then we had an interesting company pitch us for remote demo day. Marine, who works on our investment team is an associate shout out marine uh she was getting the pressure from the company hey we got a bunch of vc circling and that's not uncommon founders will you know play that card sometimes it's true most of the times it isn't so be careful playing that card because you will lose credibility if you use high pressure tactics like that oh my god we're going to close we're going to close and then you don't close <laughs> credibility goes down and then we looked at their website it was like literally out of 1999 and the founder of credibility goes way down it's like wait a second how could it look this bad and then if the traction doesn't match up now the credibility in the story starts falling apart. That's what happens. Most people will not tell you this, but people do judge a book by its cover. To not have a modern designed website that looks good on a mobile phone, you know, in twenty twenty one is just a bit of a deal killer. Uh, so don't lose credibility by having an ugly book cover. Okay, finally, item sixty on our list: Do you have a concise company mission? Can you say it in a sentence, uh, and do people understand it? Robinhood democratizes finance. Launch: We support founders and inspire innovation. Jetson, the VTOL startup I talked about earlier this week, they make anyone a pilot, Airbnb, create a world where anyone can belong anywhere. That's a bit ambitious, or, you know, I might go for a simpler one. But I think as companies get bigger, they, they kind of make the mission, you know, really ephemeral, um, create a world where anyone can belong anywhere. Uh, create a world where anyone can stay anywhere, affordably, you know, there might be another word for that Uber create opportunity by setting the world in motion. It's a little bit corny, I'll be honest. So you see as companies get bigger, they, they can kind of get into this like corny zone. I like it when it's simpler. Make anyone a pilot. Uber's original mission, your private driver. I remember that your private driver, support founders and inspire innovation, make anyone a pilot. I'm into those Amazon. We strive to offer our customers the lowest possible prices, the best available selection and the utmost convenience. Love it. Easy, cheaper, better is kind of what they're saying. Amazon is the ultimate and just being blunt when their value proposition like aws cheaper and more stable (laughs) we've got more servers and we charge lower prices It's pretty great you know i don't know what costco's or like sam's club's (laughs) line is but it's probably like a lot of stuff for a cheap price (laughs) unbelievably low prices for way too many calories this week in startups.com slash checklist for the full list this week in startups.checklist for the full list stay tuned for episode seven Okay, here's a great question from Violet Ivy two on the YouTube asks a lot of baby boomers retired as a result of the pandemic and the US needs people in various industries, including healthcare, what do you think the best way to address this is? Hmm. Only there was a way get more people to go to work. Hmm. What would we do? Huh? Well, let's take a career nursing, plumbing. Well, why don't we make it free to get those degrees or make those degrees with an ISA? And income sharing agreement, where we offer it for free, uh, or uh, based on, uh, you know, taking back one and a half times the educational cost over 10 years over seven years, whatever it is, like, let's really incentivize people. Another way to get people to go back to work is to raise the uh, raise salaries that's happening. Uh, Another way to get people to come back to work is to make them feel respected, to make them feel a sense of mission or purpose in their job, not easy to do, but also not impossible. Uh, so I think labor has the advantage right now because you have a combination of things happening. Obviously, stimulus gave people more runway and the double unemployment situation, which is ending all of that gave people a lot of runway, people's homes increased in value that gives people extra runway, people reevaluated their wild lives and said, you know what, I have enough money in the bank, I want to take the next 10 years and go skiing. No, I'm not doing that to my team who's wondering what I'm going to just pull the ripcord. I love coming to work every day. I um, could enjoy some more skiing though. Um, putting that aside. Uh, yeah, raise salaries, train more people, and then here's a crazy idea. Hear me out: If we have more jobs open, than people willing to take them, then maybe call me crazy. We could allow some highly skilled people into the country since americans don't want those jobs we are so privileged in this company i'm sorry we're so privileged it's a little frightened we're so privileged in this country to have so many opportunities that people are so affluent that they can turn them down that is something we should celebrate it's america's so great a lot of people don't need to go to work and they're happy not going to work they've either made enough lowered their burn or some combination of the two or become micro entrepreneurs where they do projects and they make money for three months and then take six months off. Congratulations. But let's be honest here. If we got 11 million job openings, and under 5% unemployment, maybe it's time for us to talk about a point based system at the border. What does it mean? It means you just take the emotion out of and the polarization out of immigration, immigration shouldn't be all or nothing. It shouldn't be about your evil or your, you know, Mother Teresa. There's a lot of nuance here. Everybody coming into the country uh, provides some amount of value. Some people might be a drag when they first get here and then eventually become, uh, you know, contributors, right? Somebody who comes here and uses social services, needs an education. They might actually be a drag for some period of time and you're making an investment with the hope. And I think it's a reasonable one that they will pay off in their taxes and their contribution to society later, kind of works for all of us and our parents right and our grandparents who came here. I don't see why it wouldn't work in the future. But since this country is very attractive for people around the world, we might get a disproportionate amount of people who want to come here. And since a dis- disproportionate number of people want to come here, we do need to have some limits. Why don't we tie the number of jobs that are available to the number of people that we let in. So in other words, you take the last five years, You have a rolling average of the last 200 weeks, 250 weeks of unemployment data. You look at it and say, What jobs are open? Okay, teachers, doctors, lawyers, construction. Okay, great. Let's take out construction. Great. Where can we get incredibly trained construction people? Great. If you're applying and you say, I've got 12 years experience in construction, I'm a plumber, I'm an electrician. Great. We need more of those. Looking back at these four years, we need. Uh, we will give a preference to what we actually need in the country. Is that too cutthroat, or is that logical? Because you do want to have product market fit here. You do want to have immigrant job fit. It doesn't help anybody if we add I don't know. If we if we let's just suppose that we had. I don't know. Too many nurses. It's not the case, but letting in a million nurses or a hundred thousand nurses and they can't find jobs. That doesn't help anybody. That hurts them. Because now they got to take a job that they're not satisfied with and it hurts the entire base of nurses because maybe salaries get lowered and that's not good either. So how about some logic? And then, oh, they want to invest in the country? Great. So we'll hold 20% of slots for people who are willing to invest a million dollars or a half million dollars. Yeah, they're buying their way in. Yeah, they're buying their way into great businesses so other people get jobs. That's a good thing. You want to let some people buy the front first class seats. Those first class seats are what make the seats in the back so cheap. That's smart overcharge them if i told you we were going to put in the front of a plane you know two private bedrooms and they were going to cost $25,000 each to go to italy and that everybody who was in coach instead of paying $800 got to pay 650 who's not taking that deal we're all taking that deal yeah go blow 25 large on a bedroom in the front of the cabin Mazel tov great that's what we need to do we need to look at this and say, let's have a sorting mechanism here. Okay, this person's going to go back to their country and be murdered because of their race, religion, creed, color, whatever. Yeah, we, we, we need to keep twenty of the, 20% of the spots for people who are refugees, who are going to face imminent harm, death, persecution, if they go back to their country, right? So people come from Cuba, uh, or they come from Venezuela, or they come from China or Russia, and we know, hey, if they go back, they're just going to be put in a gulag and tortured and murdered or worse let's keep them here you know like we, we could have some sympathy um and the point-based system could also be uh how easy how easily will you integrate into society well what makes it easier to integrate into society speaking the language a lot of other countries do this by the way uh, point-based system in the uk point-based system in canada point-based system i think new zealand and australia i'm sure of australia i'm pretty sure of new zealand so the point-based system is super um i think fair And it changes the discussion from you're a horrible Republican who is a xenophobe or you are a bleeding heart liberal who just wants to create chaos at the border. That's not actually what's happening uh, in other countries. They're just saying, let's be thoughtful about it. Let's be thoughtful. If a person has a college degree and speaks English fluently, are they going to have an easier time coming to America or Canada? Of course they are. Well, that's what the other countries do. That's what Canada does. If you have a degree or a master's degree or a PhD, you get points for each of those, and that gives you a greater chance of getting in. Does anybody argue with that? So anyway, that's a long-winded answer to, you know, what do we do about uh, the the job problem? I think sensible immigration, which I just went on a tangent on, is something I've been researching because I'm an idiot. I had no idea how any of this works, and I kept asking during this whole back and forth of politicians fighting hey, um, what's the actual number? And I couldn't find it in any of the stories. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Nobody ever mentioned how many people came in last year, how many people came in this month, how many people, you know, got in because of H-1B versus this. They, they never talk about the actual numbers. I, I always start with the data. But these government officials are so polarized, they don't start with the data, they start with the emotion. Is that a good idea? If you're flying a plane, should you get into the cockpit and say, you know what? how am i feeling right now am i scared am i nervous am i angry am i happy or should you say what's our altitude what's our speed uh okay uh how's the plane flying (laughs) you know like maybe look at the can we just look at the gauges and just make a decision to keep the plane flying you know smoothly that's what we should be doing with our government they should be keeping the plane flying smoothly less turbulence all right end of rant